my name is Graham Vinson. I am attending this morning with my beautiful wife, Stephanie, and our daughter, Annabeth. And I've been asked to read our scripture this morning. It comes to us from John 18, 1 through 11. Uh, after Jesus had completed the high priestly prayer, we read in, in John, When Jesus had spoken those words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from their chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Good morning. Thank you, Graham. Did very well for us springing that on you two minutes before the service. <laughs> I am. A, I, I love to be in a car. I love to go on rides, and, and you didn't come here to hear what I love, but I just want to share this with you for a second. I love being in the car, going on trips. Uh, no destination in mind or a destination that takes us somewhere. It's a good excuse to listen to things, look out the window, all that kind of stuff. I've never really minded a long drive. Um, in fact, when we moved a couple of years ago, we moved further away from work. So I would have the excuse to have to be in the car longer and to listen to things and all that. And that wasn't the only reason, but it, for me, it was a perk. And I just love being sort of in, in a car on a long ride. What I don't get to do very often, though, is be the passenger. Most of the time, I'm behind the wheel because I drive my own car or, you know, my wife's got her own car. And so I, I'm not usually able to be a passenger in a car, but I actually kind of enjoy that. If we're going to lunch with somebody and they say, whose car are we taking? Oftentimes, I'll be like, can we take yours? Because I want to be like the dog sticking my head out the window, and, you know, just looking around, taking in the scenery or something. But I think there's also this kind of sense of like, I don't have to make a decision. I don't have to think about the responsibility of getting us there. It just kind of relaxes me. And I, but I don't get to be the passenger very often. And so whenever we go on a long trip and I do share the wheel, uh, and, and, and it's like, you know, okay, you're getting tired. So you switch places and then you get in the passenger seat, hopefully to take a nap. I have a really hard time going to sleep. Can anybody relate? Yeah. Amen. All right. What I think goes on with that is that because I trust my own abilities too much, probably, because none of us are really as in control as we think we are, 
I have a hard time trusting the ability of the person that's driving the car. And, and in the case of like in my family or with my wife or something, there's no reason to not. But I still have a hard time letting go of that control. I, I kind of do the sleep with one eye open thing. Because when I close my eyes, I'm feeling every break, thinking, well, are we about to run into a bumper? Or you feel like a little jerk in the car. You're like, are we going off the road? And, and I don't trust my senses, even though my eyes are closed. I'm like, well, I don't want to offend them by not being able to sleep, but I'm really not getting any rest. You see, we desire, I think, to use the metaphor with what we're talking about with the text that Graham just read. We desire to trust Christ. Most of us, I think, we sincerely desire to trust Jesus. We, we sing Carrie Underwood and we say, Jesus, take the wheel, you know, and, and we mean it. We want him to be in control. But when we get in that passenger side, we're doing one of these like, no, no, I'm asleep. I trust you to get us there. We don't relax. We often fail to rest in the position that takes away our control of the circumstances or our perceived control of the circumstances. You see, the more that we go, we grow comfortable in the driver's ability, the other driver's ability and trustworthiness, the more capable we are at resting in the passenger seat over and over and over again. You keep taking those trips. They keep getting us there. After a while, your body just kind of goes, I think I can sleep now. It's a practice. It takes time. We have to, we have to become fully acquainted with the trustworthiness and the ability of the driver in order for us to start relaxing. You see, in the Christian life, we, we try to force him. Like, I, I need to trust Jesus. And so we squint, we close our eyes and everything, but we have no knowledge, it seems, of the skills and the ability of the one getting us there. What John wants us to see throughout this whole gospel, but in particular in this passage, he wants us to see the ability and trustworthiness of Jesus in his betrayal and in his arrest, which is what we've come to now. All the words have been spoken. All of the, the time and the, and the um, intimacy with the disciples has now come to an end. And so um, w- w- he is giving us an opportunity to examine the character and the, um, the ability of the driver of the vehicle. For us to see Jesus up close and personal, even in the midst of his betrayal, even in the midst of the, the heartbreak of his, uh, of his arrest that he's experiencing. So as we just heard in the text, we look at just the first couple of verses. And after Jesus had spoken the words that he had prayed in John 17, now it's time to take action. And so he goes out with his disciples and they cross the book Kidron where there was a garden. That garden is Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. If you don't get any other point in our time this morning, I want you to just really burn in your heart this first point, is that God has complete control over all circumstances. The reason why I'm I'm saying we really need to camp on this and we need to wrestle with this is because naturally we don't believe this. This is an experience of sitting in the passenger seat and sleeping with one eye open. I know the right answer. God's in control of everything. But my experience is, did we just veer off the road a little bit? He just tapped the brake. Is that because we're about to get in an accident? Our experience tells us, because we have limited and finite perspective, that I don't know if God does have control over all circumstances because this still happened to me. So what we need to see is we need to see the character and the ability of the Lord in this 
particular story, and I think it's quite amazing when we start peeling back some of this, to see that God has power, that Jesus has power over time and space, that these elements involved, particularly in this story, they answer to Jesus. We read this and we think, okay, those are the events that happen, but when we peel back the layers, we start to see how in control of this he was. So we hearken back to his words in John 16. Before his prayer, he told the disciples, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. And you're going to bail on me. But don't worry about me. This is the tone in which he's saying this. He's not scolding them. All you wimps are just going to run away. He's saying, no, the time is going to come. You're not going to be able to stay in the kitchen because of the heat. You're going to get out. It's going to be your natural reaction. But I am not alone for the father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will feel the brakes tapping. You will feel the car going off the road a little bit and hear the rumble strip. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He said, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When Jesus says the hour is coming, he's talking about a season. And the season that he's introducing now here by, by leaving the, the prayer time, by marching forward towards his, his captors, is launching this intense season of these next six weeks of all the things that Jesus is going to accomplish. We know he's marching towards the cross. We know because of Easter that he's marching towards his resurrection three days later. And after his resurrection, he's going to spend 40 days with his disciples in intense instruction and setting them to, to move forward into all the world. And then he's going to ascend to the right hand of his father. He will return to the exaltation of his glory that he had prayed about in John 17. And then he will start his ministry of interceding on our behalf. He will be at the right hand of the father so that when the devil accuses us, he'll lean over and say, my work accomplished this. This guy has no standing in your audience. All of this is about to happen in just the next six weeks of Jesus life. And thousands of years of history and prophecy have led to this point. All kinds of predictions, all kinds of types, all kinds of imagery, all through the Old Testament. And even the words of Jesus himself led to what was happening right now. These things aren't going to happen by chance. God didn't have a plan for thousands of years, only from some, for some soldiers or some kiss of Judas to blow the plan all apart. Even the time in the immediate context, what Jesus is doing here is he's pacing the events of the evening to arrive at Gethsemane, the garden that he frequented quite often for his own private solitude and his, his prayer time with his father. He was, he was there quite often and he knew, and the text even tells us Judas knew he would eventually end up there. But Judas didn't know that Jesus had planned to be there for all of this to go down because of all that this spoke about. Gethsemane, the name Gethsemane, the garden they find them, they're in olive country, Mount of Olives. They're just, you know, it's, it's part of the culture there. And so Gethsemane means oil press. You know, you get that olive oil from that press. And it's, and it's interesting to think about the fact that this is the place that Jesus, in the plan of his father, chose to, um, all of these events to take place because the life of him would be squeezed out as a result of laying his life down on our behalf. And so this, even the name of Gethsemane, the garden has significant meaning and Jesus would be there often. And I wonder 
in my own little speculation, I guess, I wonder if Jesus would go there probably because who wouldn't want to walk through a kind of vineyard and in a garden feel and stuff for solitude. But I also wonder if the human side of Jesus, this is just speculation on my part. If the human side of Jesus was in a sense getting himself in the zone or in the area of where it was all going to go down, I I, again, I, I tread lightly on this speculation because I don't want you to think that Jesus isn't God at the same time. But in his humanity, I almost picture like when, when athletes go out to the stadium before the big game and they just try to get their, their, themselves in the environment to say, this is where the most important event of my life is going to happen. I want to walk through it often so I can picture and imagine how all this is going to go. Not because Jesus needed to psych himself up, but we know that the prayer that John doesn't record between him and his father in the garden is one of intense anguish and suffering. The humanity part of who Jesus is is feeling every ounce of this torture already. And so knowing that that's part of his experience and part of the cup that he would drink, I wonder if he spent time there for that reason. Also, what's interesting to note about the space, not just the name of Gethsemane, but the location of the Kidron River. Now, Kidron is not a constantly flowing river. It had like in monsoon seasons or hard, hard rains or something like that, it would flow. But for the most part, it was a thing to pass over. And, um, and it was, uh, the temple was located just near this, um, this trench, if you will, of this, 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 um, this ravine. And during the season of Passover, all of the sacrifice of the lambs, which was estimated to be over 200,000 lambs during the season, you're generating a lot of, a lot of blood at that point. It was, it was funneled out and into this Kidron River. Keep in mind the timing that Jesus is moving forward. This, he is the Passover lamb. This is the event. The last supper is the Passover supper. All of this blood is flowing through this river that Jesus is passing over. At the time that he knows he's marching towards being the sacrificial lamb and having his blood spilt for our behalf. It's also interesting too that David crossed this river. King David back in the Old Testament after he was betrayed by the nation that he served, after he was betrayed by his own son, Absalom, who was on a power trip and angling to take over his father's throne. He even garnered the, um, the ministry or the uh, skills of David's chief um, advisor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was like, they compared him like when he spoke, he sounded so wise that it was like his words came from God himself. And so Absalom staging the coup and taking the throne over from his, from his father and everything said, I need him on my side. And Ahithophel bit probably most likely because of his pride and being needed and things. David crosses over this Kidron river as he's escaping betrayal. And after his nation and his son has traded him in, does that sound familiar to what we're seeing with what's going on with Jesus at all? And interestingly enough, Ahithophel, after he's rejected by Absalom down the road, his pride is wounded and he feels like they don't need me anymore and everything. And his ego must have been through the roof. What does he go and do? He goes and hangs himself. And if you know the story of what Judas does after betraying Jesus, he goes and does the same. There's an old saying that I've heard since I was young, and I think it very appropriate here. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? 
Everything occurs to us. We're always learning. We're always growing. We always get some new form of revelation. Or our, expan- our eyes are expanded to take in more information. There is no information that God doesn't yet possess. Nothing ever occurs to him. All of this is on purpose. In a sense, you see that God is going to redeem what's happened in gardens already. We know that life for mankind started in the Garden of Eden, but so did the fall of man. That's where rebellion took place as far as mankind was concerned. And Paul points out in Romans 5 that that yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And who was Adam? He was a type of the one Who was to come being Jesus. Paul also says in another portion that Jesus is the last Adam. He's correcting all of the failure, all of the mistakes of the previous Adam that we've all inherited. Jesus has come to be the one that Adam couldn't be the one that he should have been. It could be said that where Adam sinned, Jesus saved or where Adam hid himself. Jesus revealed himself. Jesus is more than taking the opportunity to correct all of the things that went wrong in the Garden of Eden, and he's doing it in this tiny little garden before his captors. Eden became a place of rebellion, but Gethsemane came up, became a place of submission to the will of God. And, and the promise for us, as we imagine heaven, is going to be garden-like in that sense, that for all of us in Christ, it will be a place of satisfaction. You see, the location even surrendered to the plan of God. It wasn't just a stop along the way or Jesus wasn't looking at these soldiers coming and going, oh man, I meant to be over here or I didn't know this would come so soon like any of us would experience. He knew, even the scripture tells us that he knew what was about to happen to him and he had orchestrated the entire thing. So we enter, so, and so enters Judas, comes back from his departure to prove that even evil forces answer to God in this storyline. See, Judas was dismissed early from dinner. You remember this, right? He was close to Jesus. Jesus uh, being right next to Judas, even knowing that he was the one that would betray him, chose the seat right close to him. And then leaned over and said, as he was getting that agitation in his heart, and the, the scripture says that Judas, because of, for whatever motivation, we're not clear on what led Judas down this path. We can make some speculation. But Judas eventually just yields his heart over to the plan of Satan. And the scripture says that Satan moved within him to perpetrate the greatest treachery in all human history. And he started it right next to Jesus. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. You're dismissed. Go get the process moving in motion. So Judas escapes or exits, I mean, and, and he, uh, Jesus had told that the disciples that there would be one that betrays him and nobody could put, point out that it was going to be Judas. It wasn't obvious to them that he was the scoundrel that, that, uh, would be the type to turn Jesus in. And so they were all surprised. They even started asking questions. Is it me? Is it me? So Judas is able to slip away and set these wheels in motion. In verse 3 in our text, it says that after he had procured a a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, keep in mind there's a mixture of authority going on here, that, that Jerusalem is under Roman control. And Romans only get involved with the stuff that's going to come back and be a nuisance to them. 
For the most part, you Jews, you do what you want. What do we care about your temple laws? You get your own police officers. You, you keep all of those things for yourself. But once it starts becoming a rumbling that becomes inconvenient or a threat to the Romans, then they'll get involved. So you've got a mixture of temple authorities showing up and a much bigger crowd of Roman authorities. Jesus has been at this now for three years. And as we've been seeing all through the text, he's become quite famous. None of this is under the radar screen. And so you've got, you've got um, soldiers probably showing up saying, this is where it's all going down. I volunteer. I want to go see what happens. And this cohort comes, which is oftentimes around 600, I don't know, 1,000 soldiers or something. And it's probably not quite that many because they also have to be involved in the city with the Passover events. But hundreds say, I, I volunteer. I want to see what happens. Or I, I want to go and be a part of this. And so they move and migrate into this garden. It's not just Judas and a few of his uh, armed guards. This is a this is a small army. And this is the part that John leaves out of his text that we're quite familiar with. I'm going to go over to Luke 22 just to round this out a little bit. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Can you sense like this whole buildup? This is what's been so powerful to be able to go through this life of Jesus in the gospel account from the beginning until now. Can you sense the, the force of evil all wrapped up in the subtlety of a kiss? That, that in order for Jesus to lay his life down for us, that there would be one that would betray him and it would have to be one so close to him that could get so close to him without even being a threat. All wrapped up in the, in the little gesture that you and I take for granted or that starts so many romantic relationships or launches so many uh, jewelry campaigns that every kiss begins with K and all these kinds of things like the kiss and all that it means to us is so profound and so intimate. And yet this is, for some reason, what Judas chooses to tell the soldiers he's going to do to signify that's the one you want. How will we know? He'll be the one I go up and kiss on the cheek. And so this is what he does. Getting close enough to Jesus, he says, Master. You see, I I think, because again, we don't have a lot of reason why we have to speculate a little bit. And if it was more important, then we would have the reason why. So let's not make too much of this. But I think Judas either wants to keep up the charade of loyalty right up until the very end. You could almost picture someone who doesn't want to or is kind of too cowardly to admit I orchestrated all this could right at the end just kind of be like, oh, what, there's soldiers behind me? Oh, I didn't even... I didn't even realize that or or maybe, hey, they forced me into this. They took me aside and they kind of said, you're going to go and you're going to lead us to him or I don't know. So maybe he thought he could still get up close enough to Jesus and give him a kiss and then go stand next to Jesus and say, yeah, you guys are all bad. What are you doing here? I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's the case, though, because the text also tells us John kind of parenthetically says, and Judas was standing amongst the soldiers. So after the kiss and after Jesus confronts him, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? He makes his way back to the side of the enemy. I wonder, I guess I'm speculating a lot this week. Apologize about that. 
But I wonder if Judas, remember, the devil had moved into him to make this whole thing happen. And I wonder if Judas wants to get close enough to personalize the act. To get close enough to get right in his face to drive the knife in a little deeper. That it isn't enough for him to just point him and say, that guy right there. That he says, no, I want to see the look on his face when he realized he's failed. Again, we don't know what motivated Judas to, to turn Jesus in. But remember, we've been talking all along that Judas was an opportunist. And Jesus was supposed to be the savior of the Jews. He was supposed to topple Rome in their own expectation. How angry could Judas have been that, that he didn't turn out to be that kind of savior? Or maybe he was angry that he saw his ticket to the upper class or to a place of prominence was stripped from him and he's wasted all this time with him for him to not come through. I, I'm going to get him back. So Judas maybe wants to get close enough to let Jesus know, I got you this time. You might have dragged me around all over the place, having to celebrate you and your miracles and all those sorts of things, but you've lost this time. Here's what you and I need to understand from this, though, is that followers of Jesus are never victims of circumstance because he only goes where his father's will takes him. Again, this wasn't Judas's plot. He might have thought it was. He didn't realize he was a pawn in this whole thing in the sense of Jesus was arranging and orchestrating his captivity so that they would hang him on a cross and he would save us from our sins. And oftentimes we think that Jesus or we are victims of circumstance that were led into things that God was looking elsewhere and didn't realize that this was about to happen to us. But the more we even see these events and orchestrated and we see that even those that have evil intent have no real authority over the situation. We have to take a step back and say, maybe the Lord knew all of this was going to happen. Maybe he knew how I was going to come through it and what was going to be the end result. Again, as we're sitting in the passenger seat and we're struggling to kind of relax and rest and keep both eyes closed and take a quick nap, we have to remember that the one who's driving the vehicle is in complete control of the situation. He already told us this in John 10. He said in verse 18, he says, no one takes it. That's his life he's talking about. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. This is why we're kind of a broken record here at Faith about Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstance. He wasn't just some martyr who intended well but couldn't finish the job. And so we should all appreciate him. We should all revere him. We should have his face on our t-shirts and have movements about him and just say, what a swell guy. He was the savior of the world and only the savior of the world can orchestrate these things. Jesus' complete control over the situation reminds us how utterly incapable we would be to provide for our own salvation. To think that we can earn the thing that took so much orchestration and planning and power over is laughable when we really look at it for what it is. All you and I bring to the table is mirrored for us in either Judas's betrayal or Peter's denial. That's as much faith, it seems, that we can muster on our own. Enough to sell him out. Enough to be uncomfortable with his presence. Enough to not really understand where his plan is. So we 
kind of lack some faith. And so until he says, you are able to believe and this is, this is my work and, and that we are able to see him for who he is, like John has been trying to get us to see, that he is worthy of our belief. Until then, all we bring to the table is trading him in or walking away on him. We're going to take a break now, and before we get to the second half of this message, I just think that um, uh, the worship team is going to come, and, and uh, this song uh, that Madison has for us this morning, I think, is going to illustrate where this leads for us. When we acknowledge what we can't bring to the whole equation, and when we recognize all that he's brought, where does it lead us? It leads us to a place of worship, and we fall on our knees and love him all the more. Let's listen. I'll praise to him that it's not up to us. I've counted more than a million times as we've gone through this gospel, the times I would have failed or given up, lost perspective. I'm always mesmerized by the fact that Jesus says things so plainly to the disciples and it still doesn't occur to them what's happening and how humbling that is that that it's by his grace and his own revelation that he even loves us and does this for us. We go back to our text in verse 4 in this tiny little phrase that Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward. I'd love to insert the word anyway. And said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Or Jesus said to them, I am. In your Bible and up on our screen and in mine and everything, we have the word I am he. That is the response that we would see it in the English translation of that. But he simply says, I am. And we've said this many times before. That Jesus is using the title that God used for himself when Moses said, whom should I tell the people that sent me? Who, who do I say to them that, uh, that I represent? And God's answer was, I am who I am. God has many names. He's known by so many different names and all of them are fitting and all of them are true, but, but there isn't a way to describe all that I am. you're, You're saying to me, who do I say sent you? And I am just who I am. And they're going to have to discover that. It's a title. It's a response of authority. Jesus says, I am. All the traditional Jews would know what an offense that is, claiming to be equal with God. So Jesus uses a powerful, authoritative Statement for what purpose? To knock them all over? Or to protect his disciples? What did Jesus just pray in the last chapter? Father, all that you've given to me in my name, may I never lose one of them by your mighty name. So when God, when the, when the soldiers ask, when Jesus asks, whom do you seek? What he's saying is, let's keep something clear. You came for me and not them. He's shielding his disciples from arrest. Why would he do that? Because he's the great shepherd. 
Because he knows this is what I can do for you alone. This is why I go back to the statement that we saw in chapter 16 where God, where Jesus says to them, you'll leave me alone. And I don't think that he's deriding them for that. I think he's saying this is the way it has to be. Even if you tried to come, Peter, even if you tried to follow me, I would tell you, I got to do this alone. And here he is shielding them. Who did you come for? We came for Jesus of Nazareth. I am right here. And the ultimate example of sacrifice is now put in motion. Now the disciples are starting to see the length that their great shepherd will go because all along they've been thinking, how can we protect him from himself? He's going to get himself in trouble. How can we plot and scheme so that this thing he keeps saying is going to happen doesn't really happen? Now they're seeing these wheels in motion and they're thinking, oh, this was on purpose, by design. This is how Jesus is using the power when he says, I am, and they all fall to the ground like dominoes. The demonstration of the power, which I think is what's happening here. Otherwise, you got to believe there's like a Monty Python skit going on here. That hundreds of guys who are clueless about how to defend themselves or to that they have no business being a soldier or anything are packed so close that when Jesus says, here I am, they all went, oh, I can't believe he admitted it. Boom, 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 and all fall over. And you hear the clanking of armor and all these kinds of things. And you'd have to believe that they were so inept and incapable of taking care of themselves that just because he responded and said, that's who, that's who you're, I'm who you're looking for, that they would just fall over. No, I believe that this, this expression is the same power that calmed the storms. And I think it's the same power that raised the dead, the same power that healed blind eyes and accomplished all that Jesus came to, to demonstrate his authority. And I also think this is Jesus' touch on saying, you think you're in control, poof, <laughs> but you're not. Oh, I mean, here, take me, arrest me. See, Jesus is letting them know that you're not really in charge like you think you are. Who, do you, who are you looking for again? And just so we're clear, we're not bothering these guys, right? Uh, yeah, anything you say, um, sir. This was to fulfill the word, verse 9 says to us. He says, if you, if you seek me, I'm sorry, in verse 8, I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. What is Jesus going to use his power for? To get out of a jam? Not this time. Is he going to use it to impress everybody around him? Not this time. What is he using his power for? He's using his power to shield those whom, who belong to him. Those whom he loves. God's power is always used for the good of his own. We, I'm telling you, we need to let this sink in. Again, remember what our reaction is. Our reaction is we're in the passenger seat and we're really not good at resting, relaxing, trusting the driver. It's, it's uncomfortable for us. Our knee-jerk reaction to the circumstances in our life is, God, you're big enough, you're strong enough. How can you couldn't shield me from? Or why would you let this happen? Or you're just picking on me now. Like our kids say to us sometimes when we're disciplining, why do you hate me so much? This is our reaction to the work and the power of God. But the truth is, the principle in this is that God only uses his power on behalf of his children for their own good, not their harm. 
But this is what we do. If we feel discipline, if we feel um, uh, his, his, his strong hand against us, even though it's to, to shape us and to push us in the right direction, to shield us from things that we could even make worse for ourselves, all of those things, we often run to the place of, why are you picking on me? The writer of Hebrews challenges this notion and reminds us that even if we are feeling his strong hand, that we should be very careful about how we evaluate it. In Hebrews 12, this is what the writer says. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. So in other words, he did that for you. So even though you're going through it, you haven't been pushed to that brink. Verse five, and you have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is what he quotes. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I know in our text, we're talking about Jesus using his force against his enemies. But we also have to remember that that same God, that same power is used on our behalf for our good. Not so that we can just summon it down when I need to. I need this done in my life. I need this cleared up. I want to make sure I avoid this kind of pressure or, or challenge or something. So God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You have the ability to calm the seas. I, I claim your power in your name to do this and wipe out those soldiers. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm here to accomplish in your life. I came here to submit. I came here in this particular situation to lay my life down on your behalf. Now, he's done that once and for all. He's not always going to be doing that. What he's done is he's done the thing that fixes the rest of our greatest problem for all of eternity. And our problem is our sin debt before God. And we often want to use God's power like he's a genie or like he's got other motives that should match what we think the circumstance should be or how we think things should play out. Peter fell into this trap. Verse 10, we know what he does. Having a sword, seems like Peter always has a sword, whether it's figurative or literal. He's always ready for a fight. So he had a sword, tiny little one. He was able to hide it and tuck it away. And he whacks off the soldier's ear. I used to think it was like, because he had this precise, like, now I could have done worse to you. No, see, Peter was going for the kill. Most likely came down off the side of a helmet or something like that. And all Malchus had happened to him is how we could look at this was that he lost an ear in the process. Now, John doesn't cover this, but what does Jesus do with that ear? Picks it off the ground. Mr. Potatoes, Mr. Potato heads it right back to his head, gives him his ear back. Says, we good. Can you hear me? Check, check. One, two. Peter, though, his reaction is to defend Jesus, to know what's really best for Jesus in this moment, to, to know what he what he can do to, to fix the situation. It isn't amazing after Jesus says, boo, and they all fall over. Peter's like, yeah, but my sword could really take care of them. Don't we get like the head of Peter, the heart of Peter sometimes? We're like, God, where would you be without me? The boldness of Peter, which is often pretty praiseworthy. I think we, we should look with, at Peter with a little bit of admiration for his dedication and his passion. We all need a Peter in our life. Somebody will go to our defense, whether I'm right or wrong. Somebody's going to come and say, you can't talk to him like that. We kind of be like, man, I'm glad I got Peter on my side. 
But for all that Peter is with his boldness, it's diminished by his impulsivity. He undoes all of his strength by the fact that he can't control it. He can't contain it. He's the type of person that's over in the passenger side saying, you're going too fast. You just swerved. Did you see that car in front of you? See those brake lights? Peter wants to be in control. He needs to, he needs to own the whole thing. This is what we would call living a feeling-oriented life as opposed to a principle-oriented life. Now, feeling-oriented doesn't mean that you're super emotional and you cry every time there's a sunrise or a chick flicks plan. Feeling-oriented means I've summed up the situation based on what I feel like I need and I know exactly what I'm going to do next. Regardless of reason, regardless of a better principle that could be at play. No, this is how I feel and I'm going to react. If I'm hungry, I'm going to indulge. If I'm, if I'm tired, I'm going to hit the snooze button three times. Even if I lose my job, I felt like I needed this, so I acted on it. A feeling oriented life takes us to all kinds of places for, towards our destruction because it can't be trusted. It's, it's up and down like a roller coaster. A principle-oriented life may still feel those things. It's not that one personality type is better suited to live this way versus another. Someone who's more emotional isn't less godly than somebody who's more stoic or grounded acting. But a principle-oriented life says, I can arrest those feelings. I can allow them to be controlled under the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I don't know exactly what I should do next, and I'd rather the Lord make it clear to me. I'd rather the Lord's word guide me in this next step. Rather than me just dumping into something and lobbing off the guy's ear, I should probably find out, do you have a different plan at play here, Master? Well, who's got time for that? When I want him to know my dedication, when I've oriented my whole heart at being his fan and stuff, I don't have time to wait around for his opinion. I want him to know how serious I am. You see, our first reaction usually misses God's mark. Now, I, I mean this when I say this. I'm going to go slow to say this because I, I, I really believe that this is one of the great breaks in the, in the church or one of the great um, blemishes on the church today is that we have a feeling-oriented Christianity that dives into the emotional and we think that is somehow more spiritual because we've equated the Holy Spirit and the movement of the Holy Spirit with the things that we can feel. Christian maturity demonstrates a hesitancy to trust your own thoughts and impulses. That might sound controversial to some. If I'm more in tune with the spirit, then he tells me exactly when to take the next step. And I do it and I follow him and I just feel his presence. How often have we said that? Christian maturity demonstrates a hesitancy. I didn't say a complete denial of a hesitancy to trust our own thoughts in impulses. What am I saying? Oftentimes that I've blamed the Holy Spirit for an impulse in my life, it's because of a selfish ambition I had. I thought because I was so committed to him and because I was so dedicated to the cause that what I felt in the moment was his plan and it only blew up in my face. It's like I cut the soldier's ear off myself. I meant well. I was charging full steam ahead. But in actuality, I gave into my feelings more than what the Lord was trying to accomplish in the moment. It's tough to balance, and that's why I keep using the word practice when it comes to Christian maturity. We don't get these things just by flipping a switch. The caution I would give is to learn to delay your actions and weigh them before the Lord. If the opportunity is godly, then it will come around again. 
Can the Lord work more in the fact that we're a little slow to react than all of us being completely impulsive and just knowing exactly and precisely what to do and, and how to lead and what to do next? Those are the things that we write the books about. The decisive leader who's Im- impulsive and just knows the right thing right out of the gate and the wisdom is through the roof and all that kind of stuff, at least by perception. But is it time in this season, especially in our church, uh, in our moment of church history, to be able to be like, I don't know the end of all things. Maybe I shouldn't be so quick to react. Maybe I should let the Lord reveal the landscape to me and spell out to me through the principles of his word how I'm supposed to conduct myself. I think Paul sums this up well in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The reason why we often recoil uh, when we think of, 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 a, of a more uh, restrained approach to our reaction is because we think somehow it won't get the job done. When we have more faith in the one who's got the ability to get the car from point A to point B, we can actually maybe rest a little bit in peace in the passenger seat. I am not preaching inactivity or passivity. A different kind of action. Spiritual weaponry. This is why Jesus says to Peter in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not do this? Shall I not drink this cup? Shall I not walk through this experience that the Lord has prepared for me? That the Father has for me? Peter, your impulsivity might have ruined the entire plan of redemption for all of eternity. Now, it wasn't going to because he was God. Peter is just going to get in the way and he's going to learn his lesson. But in Peter's mind, I'm doing better for the Lord. And God's saying, what better can be done than I lay down my life and hang on this cross and come back from the dead to defeat death and sin once and for all? Peter, your great action might have thwarted the whole plan that the rest of mankind needed. Shall I not drink this cup? Shall I not go through this experience as painful and as torturous as it is? Should I not do this for you, Peter? I was reminded of an old song by a pretty poetic uh, singer-songwriter back in the day named Michael Card. And he writes a song that asks these questions. Well, why did it go down this way? And in that song, he, he uh, attempts an answer to some of these big questions that most of us would have. He says, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. So the questions continue. And and why did it have to be a thorny crown pressed upon his head? It should have been a royal one made of jewels and gold instead. The answer was it had to be a crown of thorns because in this life that we live... For all that would seek to love a thorn is all this world has to give. So so why did it have to be a heavy cross that he was made to bear? And why did they nail his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. It was a cross, for on a cross a thief was supposed to pay. And Jesus had come into the world to steal every heart away. Jesus wasn't captured. He didn't walk into the net of these soldiers or of Judas' grand master plan. Jesus led everyone into his net of grace in that garden. Who's the captor here? Them or him? 
And Jesus is, is coming to arrest us and allow us to be able to humble ourselves before him and believe in him. But some resist arrest, don't they? Out of pride, I can't, I can't give myself to that kind of authority. I don't want him to come and change my lifestyle. I, I, I like what I have. I don't want to follow someone else who would tell me where to go and what to do. Or maybe it's out of fear. I, I, I don't want his invasion in my life. I don't want him to see what's in my closet. I don't want to, I just don't want to face him. He's God. Or maybe it's disbelief in the unexplained. You're talking about resurrection. You're talking about miracles. You're talking about coming back from the dead and who can wrap their head around this? No, I can't do that. For all kinds of reasons, many resist the arrest of Jesus Christ. But maybe, maybe you're Malchus. Don't you think it's interesting that we have his name in this story, that John thought it was important to say, oh, by the way, the soldier's name was Malchus. I wonder why that is. Could it be perhaps that that name was known to the early church because when Jesus sticks your ear back on your head like Mr. Potato Head, you start to pay attention to who this man might be? And you thought you came to arrest him, but then he comes and arrests you. He changes your heart and you say, oh, I didn't know you could do this. I had only heard the rumors. And why would you care for me? I came to bust you. I came to imprison you. And yet you stoop down to heal me. Do you think that perhaps Malchus' heart was changed? And John said, oh, by the way, that soldier was the one that we went to church with all those years. I don't know. But is that you? Is Jesus surprising you by his grace? For all of us, seeing the control God has over circumstances gives us reason to rest in the passenger seat. The more familiar and acquainted we get with his abilities and his trustworthiness, we start to practice relaxing and trusting in him. Believers, that's you and I, we grow as as we live by the principles of God's word and trust less and less the impulses of our flesh. That's what it means to give more of your life over to the control of the spirit. And that is what the Lord has come to give us the ability to do. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. And then after we pray, the countdown will begin for us to come back in 30 minutes and and continue our meeting and and have a good time together in worship and, and in vision. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us together. I thank you, Lord, for what you've accomplished by your spirit this morning, there's no way for us to know what you've done in somebody's heart at a real personal level, Lord. Only you and that individual would know that. That's why, Lord, we appeal to you in our worship for you to do the work that only you can do. There's nothing we can manufacture or orchestrate to accomplish your plans. That's been made clear to us in our Bible today. So help us, Lord, to continue to fall on you. Help us, Lord, to continue to follow each footstep of yours as true disciples, as true followers of you, knowing that you're the possessor of all the ability and the power to get us where you've promised us to be. So we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you, Lord, for these dear people. We thank you, Lord, for the mission you've given us to accomplish. Pray you'd help us to do it in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.